Now I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13, our text for this afternoon. John chapter 13. Now as I said a few minutes ago, this is the first sermon in a series, and the plan is to give you another installment each time that I preach here. This is a sermon series that we desperately need to hear and apply to our lives. It's a sermon series that every church of Jesus Christ needs to hear, right now and always, the one another commandments of the New Testament. We'll begin with the commandment to love as it is foundational. And there will be a definition also of love in the sermon, but it will be fleshed out more and more through each subsequent one another commandment as how we love is explained in those commandments as well. Let's read John 13, the verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. After the sermon, without any further announcement, we will sing our Amen song of hymn 23, all six stanzas. May God bless the preaching of his word. Brothers and sisters loved by our Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't noticed already, let me be the first to tell you, winter has come now to the Fraser Valley. Frosty mornings, wet afternoons, snow on the mountains. And because of that, maybe some of us really love winter, but I think a lot of us may be looking forward to the return of summer. Feels like it was just here and it's gone already. And with that worker bee that happened last Saturday, Stepping Stones Bible Camp might be first and foremost in your minds. For, for so many, summer means stepping stones. For campers and counselors alike, stepping stones is the highlight of the summer. And why? Is it because the facilities are the best in the world? Well, no. The facilities are wonderful. Legacy windows and doors did an amazing job. But it's not because of the buildings. Maybe it's it's because of the staff. Maybe it's because of the counselors. No. The staff and the counselors, they are well-chosen. They are wise and passionate Christian leaders. But it's also not because of the staff. So, why then? Why is Stepping Stones this amazing experience? Well, it's because of what has been called camp culture. What exactly is this camp culture, you might ask? Well, when you're at Stepping Stones, you are so invigorated in your faith. Following God is something that just seems so easy. And when you're there, you wonder why you struggled so much in your regular daily life. You're you're filled with confidence that who you are at camp is going to be who you are always. You have this deeper faith. You have a deeper love. It's amazing. But then you get back into your regular daily life, and you revert back to who you were almost immediately. And we sigh. We throw up our hands and we say, well, I guess I'll have to wait until next year to get that experience again. But why? Why Do we lose that camp culture? Why does it have to be harder in everyday life? 
Surely, what happens at camp, focusing everything you are on worshiping God, being surrounded by fellow believers, eating together, worshiping together, surely this isn't just something that camp can provide. In fact, I think we can go so far as to say this is something that we shouldn't expect camp to provide. It's not how God intended it. Let me put it to you this afternoon as we begin this sermon series together that what we're actually talking about isn't camp culture at all. It's not camp culture, it's church culture, or at least it should be. This is how Jesus Christ has commanded his church to be, focused not on dead orthodoxy, focused not just on who we aren't, We're not Roman Catholic, we're not Baptist, we're not Mennonite, we're not Alliance, any other church you can think of. Focused not on our identity as Dutch immigrants or descending from Dutch immigrants, but focused on something far more important than that. It is, as Minister Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, orthodoxy is essential, but it isn't enough. Orthodoxy is essential, but it isn't enough. Orthodoxy, that's, that's the right belief in the head. It has to extend into what's known as orthopathy, right affections in the heart, right passions, and orthopraxy, right actions of love with the hands. So let's examine how we are to, to rightly express our right belief with our first of the one another commandments, love one another. I'll see that we're given a commandment, we're given an example, and we're given a reason. First of all, we're given a commandment. Now, as we begin this series on the one another commandments, there are two interesting statements made by pastor and author Andy Stanley that I'd like to lay out before you this afternoon. And for some of you, you know that Andy Stanley has recently moved into a less than orthodox view of various things, but these statements, they still do hold up. This is what he said, first of all, the primary activity of the early church was one anothering one another. And then the second statement, when everyone is is sitting in rows, you can't do the one another's. So the primary activity of the early church was one anothering one another. There's a lot to unpack here. Because some people might protest. They might say, no, the primary activity of the early church was to fulfill the Great Commission the words that welcomed us into worship here this afternoon. Go, therefore, and make disciples of nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These people, they would say, the primary activity of the early church was outward. Go make disciples, not inward. Love one another. But what we have to see is that both the outward and the inward— activities, they're they're two sides of the same coin. The church's inward love and care and one anothering, it acts as a billboard that draws in passers-by. That inward love, that inward connection of who we are to one another in the church that leads then to the outward. People from all nations, they're drawn in, and then they have to be encouraged, they have to be loved, they have to be taught, they have to be cared for, They have to be discipled through, you guessed it, through one another. Then, as for sitting in rows or sitting in in pews, 
limiting or even making these one another's impossible. Well, that's true from a certain point of view. To be clear, I'm not advocating replacing the pews with chairs that you then put in a circle. You do have the chairs already, but you can keep them in rows. Um, I'm not advocating replacing the pulpit with sort of a beanbag chair to make everything a little more cozy and welcoming. The issue here, it's not the setup on Sundays. Rather, the issue is that the church only seems to exist on Sundays. It's really hard to one another, the other person, in a row. And it's impossible if you think that church time is exclusively pew time or sanctuary time. This is one of the reasons that church culture is so distinct from camp culture. Because camp culture, it's something that is all-encompassing. You eat and you sleep and you live with these people. You laugh, you make jokes, you prank people. 24 hours a day, five days for your week together. But the church, if we see the church as somewhere that we go to on Sundays instead of something that we are every day of the week, then we cannot possibly hope to do what our Savior has commanded us to do. Love, it's not a once-a-week pill that you pop, take once a week with a side of peppermints. It's so much more than that. It's so much greater than that. So let's dive into what our Savior has told us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And when Jesus said these words, the time was short. The countdown to the cross was almost at zero. As one commentator said, if the disciples were ever to hear his voice, they must hear it now. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Here is the final commandment of our Lord's earthly ministry, and it's very clear. Love one another. Just three words. And yet, it isn't immediately obvious. It isn't immediately simple. So let's examine it together, bit by bit, phrase by phrase. A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment. Since when has love been a commandment? Is love really something that can be regulated? Love, it's just an emotion, isn't it? It's it's something that just comes up spontaneously and naturally, right? Well, if you've been married longer than a few months, or if you've been in any long-term relationship, or if you've ever been around kids, or if you have even a single friend, so that's all of us now, you realize that loving just when you feel like it It doesn't work. Saving love for when it feels natural to love is a surefire way to destroy relationships and friendships. Because love, it doesn't naturally bubble up so much. And so, it's a commandment. Jesus commands it, and the Apostle John in our reading, he picks up that thread. And why? Why does Jesus speak in such firm terminology? A new commandment I give you. And then John, he makes this act of love. He makes our love for one another hinge on God's love for us. And if we don't love each other, then we don't even know God. That's a serious accusation here. Is love really something that important? Absolutely it is. 
Love is not inferior to truth. Love is not inferior to power or authority. Love, as we heard earlier, is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the first fruit that the Spirit works in the hearts of believers. Love was God's motivation to create. Love was God's motivation to save. God is love. So love is that important. And it's something that we have to be commanded to do. We don't naturally love, you see. We were created to naturally love, but then we fell into sin and it's not quite so natural anymore. Sin destroys love. It was your sin. It is your sin that makes you not feel like loving your spouse. It's your sin that makes you not feel like loving your friends or your family. And it's sin that makes your spouse and your friends and your family act in ways that discourage you from loving them. By nature, by our fallen, sinful human nature, we hate God, and we naturally hate our neighbor. And so, that thing that we were created to do, that thing that should be naturally just working inside of us, naturally bubbling up all the time, it doesn't do that anymore, and so it has to be commanded. And this is how it has been since the beginning. And Jesus gave the summary of the law in Matthew 22. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor. He wasn't adding anything new. It's not that the God of the Old Testament was angry and judgmental and the God of the New Testament. Finally, we see some love. Not at all. What Jesus is doing when he's saying these things is he's drawing out these two Old Testament commandments. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6. And then, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19. So Jesus, he's drawing these two commandments out of the Old Testament and he's revealing them, he's refreshing them for his people in that day. Love has been a commandment in writing since Moses and even before that in practice. And so even though that answers one question, we're coming up against another one. So we know why it's a commandment, but Jesus says a new commandment I give to you. So if the commandment to love has been around as long as we have, a response to the fall into sin, how can Jesus say that this is a new commandment? Well, the word that Jesus uses here for new, it's not the typical word that's used. This word for new, it carries with it not the idea of brand new, never before seen, novel, but rather it's the idea of refreshing something. Maybe that doesn't make enough sense. So, how about this for an example? Think of the sunrise. See the sunrise in the morning. And the sun rises every morning. It's a new sunrise, but it's the very same sun. So, what Jesus is doing here is this is a new, refreshed, ancient truth. And it's new, it's refreshed, because it's founded upon our new relationship with Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the Apostle John picks up on in our reading. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, before we go discounting that if and say, 
No, well, it's an if, but it carries with it the force of a sense, which is absolutely true. It has the idea of since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But let's sit for a second with the uncomfortable if. If God so loved us. Did he? Did God love us? You've probably never heard a minister ask that from the pulpit before, have you? And that's good, because it is a completely ridiculous question. Did God love us? What, what a ridiculous question that is. Because the evidence of God's love, it's all around us. The evidence of God's love is overwhelming. How, how could we doubt this? The evidence of God's love. You have the, the most wonderful opportunity in your second service here to celebrate God's love. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, it looks back to his love shown on the cross. It looks forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb. It is a love feast that you are celebrating. That unity with you and God, that unity with each other, it's a beautiful thing. The love of God is so obvious. So why, why would we waste our time on this question with such an obvious answer? Honestly, why do I ask it? Because we don't act like it. There are times, more times than we care to admit, when we act as though God didn't love us. Verse 11 again, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The proof, the proof that we recognize and acknowledge God's love is in how we love. The Apostle John, he's saying to the early church, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same message comes to us here today. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that, God's, that God loves you? And the early church, and we respond in our hearts, of course, of course we believe that God loves us. And then John says, I can't hear you. I can't hear your profession of faith in the love of God because your unloving actions are drowning out your profession. Your orthodoxy is all well and good, but it's not enough. Do you believe that God loved you? Then prove it. Already from the moment of creation, there was proof that God loved his people. There was proof in the beautiful garden that he created for Adam and Eve. There was proof in that when they sinned, when they told God by their actions, we don't want you to be God, we want to be gods ourselves, God was there. He was there. He was seeking them out. He asked the most loving question, where are you? Not because he didn't know, but because he wanted that relationship to be fixed. Where are you? Why are you not here with me? Come, let us reason together. Let's fix what you've broken. There's already proof from the very beginning that God loved his people, but it's only increased over time. The Old Testament church, they were God's chosen people. They were his desperately loved bride. He ransomed them out of Egypt, but they were never his body. They were never called his friends. They were never his temple. In the Old Covenant, God never sat across a table from them. God never knelt down and washed their feet. So this, this is a love that has existed in God since before the foundation of the world. 
but it had never been shown in such a stark and clear manner. This forms the foundation of this refreshed commandment. With his clothes and with their feet still wet, he speaks this new commandment to his disciples. This is a brand new ancient commandment. Love, something even older than humanity itself, is now renewed and restored. It's brought to intense clarity and precision through the command of Jesus Christ and through his example. That's our second point. A new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. Jesus Christ is our example. He is our picture of what love truly is. And the context here says it all. The beginning of this chapter, John 13, verse 1. This is what we read. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This, right here, is the most beautiful, the most moving love letter that anyone has ever written. And it's one sentence, one sentence, only 15 words, but it says it all. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And compare this to what is widely recognized as the longest love letter ever written. This one is the best, compare it to the longest. Maybe you've heard this story before. The year is, is 1875, and the French painter Marcel de Leclerc is, is feeling rather amorous. Inspiration strikes him, and he writes the words, Je vous aime, I love you in French, 1,875,000 times. 1,000 multiplied by the year in which he wrote it, and he sends it to his love interest. This was the whole letter. Sheets and sheets and sheets of the same three-word phrase, je vous aime, je vous aime, je vous aime. Now, while even the most cynical among us can perhaps appreciate the effort that he went to, know that he dictated this to his secretary, who was the one who actually wrote the words. So if it was, if it was just about the words... If it was just about saying the right things, then love would be really quite simple. But it's not. It's about the meaning behind the words. It's about the actions of the person. Reading the words, je vous aime, almost two million times can feel quite empty, not to mention annoying, long and drawn out, superfluous. But in the 15 words of Jesus' love letter, Describing his love, we learn more about love than in all the paper and ink used in Paris all those years ago. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this is what love is. If you want a definition here, here is what love is. Love is seeking the good of the other with no thought of the cost to yourself. It is seeking the good of the other with no thought to the cost for yourself. Love is sometimes obvious. Other times, love might have to be tough love. But love puts the other above you. 
love. It's the description of Jesus' life, from emptying himself of his glory, being born as a human, lovingly submitting to his sinful parents when they rebuked him, to suffering, to suffering as the weight of the sin of the world fell on his shoulders every day of his life, to the moment when he knelt down and he washed his disciples' feet. I know we touched on this very briefly in our first point, but I'd like to revisit it now because there's something so amazing in what our Lord did. Something so amazing in kneeling down and washing feet. Jesus Christ, the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, having already taken on the form of a servant in his incarnation, he takes the form of a servant again. He sheds his clothes as he once shed his glory. He knelt down. God of the universe, kneeling before his creatures, washing their feet. He washed their feet. And at this point, remember, there were still all 12 disciples in the room. So the Savior of the world, God incarnate, washed all 24 feet. He washed the feet of the 10 who had run away from him. He washed the feet of the one who would deny him three times calling down curses from heaven, saying, I never knew him. He even washed the feet of the one who would betray him, selling him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And yet Jesus washed every foot. He loved each of them. He loved them all. And this example, the example Love as I have loved, it's, it's not the foot washing itself, as some believe. It's not the action that is this enduring command, but it's the love. It's the willingness to make yourself nothing for those around you, if that's what it takes. Love one another, just as I have loved you. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The love that would compel God to become a servant. To become a servant to those who would treat him so horribly in the coming hours. This is what we need to aspire to. We need to aspire to this level of love while also realizing that we are not Jesus. His mission required him to lay down his life for those who abused him. For those who hated him. For those who attacked him and killed him. His specific mission required him to suffer abuse silently. But your call to love, even though you are to love as Jesus loved, it does not require this of you. To be clear, you love because you have been loved, not because the other person deserves it. They probably don't deserve it, but you still have to love. But since your mission is not dying an atoning death that happened only once, The suffering, silent servant, you are not that servant Jesus was. Love for your abuser means getting out and reporting that abuse so they don't hurt you, so they don't hurt anyone else ever again. Do not take this to mean that you must suffer in exactly the same way as Jesus did. He did that for you. Out of love for God, we must do what is right. Abuse is not right. Out of love for our neighbor, we must do what is right and save the abuser from himself. And out of love for ourselves. And yes, we can have this. 
We have to be very careful with it. We have to do what is right and save ourselves from the lies and the harm that we suffer at the hands of an abuser. We have to have that same love that Jesus did, shown sometimes in the same way, sometimes in a different way, because we are not God. We are so very human. We have to have that same love inside of us, constantly bubbling up. We know it's not natural. We know that there's such a challenge to this because of our sinful human nature. That's what we heard in our first point. It has to be commanded because of our sin. Our sin causes us to make excuses. Excuses so that we don't have to show this kind of radical love. We may even make some very biblical-sounding excuses. Ephesians 4, it's a wonderful excuse that we like to use. Speak the truth in love. And we, we love to focus on that first part and just do away with the second. Speak the truth, we say. And afterwards, we whisper, in love. Because speaking the truth is loving, we say. That, that last part, it's not needed. Some people, maybe all people, what they really need is someone like me to challenge them. And I love them too much to mince words. I'll just outright challenge them and debate them with raised voices. This is how I love them. But you know better. You know better than that. So do better. Our Lord, he is the perfect example of these two steps to love. Speak the truth in love. He washed the feet of Judas, but he also told him that he knew that he was the betrayer. He washed Judas's feet. He gave him the bread, but he also told him to go out and do what he was about to do quickly. With damp feet, Judas had Satan enter him, and he went out into the night. Jesus also washed the feet of Peter and told him that he would go out and deny him three times. Speak the truth in love. Do that. And Proverbs 27 it's another wonderful excuse we like to use. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So being right, being theologically precise, has become so much more important than being loving. When someone comes with a legitimate question, when someone who doesn't know how to interpret a passage of Scripture comes, what do we do? Do we shame him and tell him to go and read more commentaries of Calvin? If someone ideas? Do we pound him into the dirt until he submits and says what is right? I'm just sharpening him. The iron, it clashes again and again and again until instead of sharpening, instead of true love being achieved, a sword fight ensues. You know better. Don't make these excuses for yourself. Do better. Back to our reading, just briefly, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So do you know what this means? Because this is another one of those amazing verses. It means that just as Jesus Christ is the image of God, the commandment to love, the commandment to love took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The incarnation was an incarnation of love. Love took on flesh. And so love, true love, it not only exists. It's not just a fantasy. It's not just present in fairy tales and romantic comedies. Love is real. It's real 
John says. It's real. I've seen it. With my own two eyes, I've seen Jesus. I've seen love take on flesh. John saw it. The other apostles, they saw it. But the Christians in the generation after the apostles and every generation since, they have not seen love take on flesh in Jesus. That's a bit of a problem, so let's fix it. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so if we love, if we love as he loved, in this way we are making the invisible God visible. Love took on flesh in Christ and love needs to take on flesh in Christians. Because our Lord, he was not only the perfect example of love, he was that, of course, but he was more. But what he did was, was he restored our relationship with God. He paid for our sins. He ransomed us from the power of the devil. He's caused his Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, sanctifying us, making us holy, making us able to love once more. He's restoring what we were in the garden before the fall into sin. And he's going farther. This new commandment, it's possible for believers to keep by the power of Christ at work in them. This, it doesn't mean that now we as Christians, we can use our newfound ability to love as something to boost our ego. As Christians, we're so much better than anyone else. Not at all. It should humble us. This is what we must say when we love we must say, from one wretched sinner to another, there is enough love in God's heart for you. From one former rebel to another, you cannot outsin God's grace. But now, from one child of God to another, fight against your sin. Fight against it with the power of the Spirit inside you, with the full support of your brothers and your sisters. This is the kind of love that we're called to. This overwhelming, never-ending, radical love of God. But unlike so many in the world think, unlike maybe so many of us think, love is not there, love does not exist only for its own sake. There, there is actually a greater purpose. There is a reason for us to love one another. That's our final point. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And this brings us back to one of the quotes we started the sermon with. The primary activity of the early church was one anothering one another. The love that the disciples were to have for one another, it was meant to be a shining light out to the world. This one anothering, it's for both the internal as well as the external, both for the health of the church and for the growth of the church. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And history tells us that the early church followed this commandment rather well. Tertullian writing in A.D. 200, he says, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. 
for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves would sooner execute. It's when the church, when the church loves each other, the world takes notice. And we have to see that this is what this commandment is. Because sometimes we get it wrong. Though, as Christians, we are to love the world as God did. God so loved the world, we also are to love the world. But this particular commandment, it's a commandment for the, for the 11 disciples around that table. Judas had gone, and now to us. Jesus is saying, in essence here, I know that it's hard to love the world. It's too daunting of a task, so we'll have you start small. Start right here. Start right now and practice. Practice your love in this very room. Love one another. You 11 disciples, 